there, robots! This is Hannah, and you're listening to Remedial Studies. I'm joined today by my lovely co-host, Rachel, and we're going to be talking about I'll Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer by Michelle McNamara. I gave y'all a little bit of a preview of this on Twitter. This episode is going to be a bit bit of a ride, because this book's a bit of a ride. I'm usually pretty okay with a lot of the stuff that true crime tends to cover, like the violent, the the violence part of it. I'm usually pretty okay. This book fucking rattled me. I'm on the other end of that spectrum. I'm very flappable. I'm consider me perpetually flapped. I'm just. <laughs> It's not a good time. There were a lot of things about this book that just creeped into my psyche and just, like, burrowed in there and made me incredibly anxious. I read it so quickly because I wanted to be done with it so that I could start the decompression process. That's fucking real. I know you read, like, the print copy. I listened to the audiobook, which was somehow worse. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's the like it was very good and the woman who read it was very good but it was like there was something more cerebral about it i don't i couldn't tell you why also just as a glimpse into my personal life i have been living in my house alone with my dog for like a week and a half so of course it was a wonderful time to read about a person who invaded homes and raped and killed people <laughs> wonderful yeah. time 10 out of 10 recommend yeah it wasn't i'm not i wasn't super thrilled about the victim profiles either (laughs) yeah because you really fit that i didn't notice it until you mentioned it to me but once you mentioned it i was like oh god yeah i was just like super uncomfortable all the time i was reading it would you like to explain a little bit about what this book covers Yeah, so the book is essentially a part true crime book and part memoir of Michelle McNamara's coverage and involvement in the Golden State Killer investigation. It was published um, after her death, about two years after her death, I think, and two people that she was really involved with during her investigation finished the book. Um, It has a foreword by Gillian Flynn, who's a mystery crime writer. And an afterword by her husband, Patton Oswald. I, I think what is most important about the book is it really, it interweaves two narratives that sort of come together the closer to the end of the book you get. And the two narratives are what happened with the Golden State Killer, first of all, when he was committing the many and sundry crimes he committed, and how that led into the subsequent investigation and how I actually never knew this before reading this book. Three different, I think one was a burglar, one was a serial rapist, and then one was both. How all these these people that they thought were three different people were actually found out to be the same person, which is somehow even more horrifying. And uh, the memoir is Michelle McNamara's story of sort of how she became the kind of person who would dedicate her life to finding somebody like that. And I think what almost affected me more was the parts of it that were more 
memoir because it talks about her growing up in Chicago and one of the first stories she tells is the story of like why she got into writing crime in the first place because she she wrote about many other crimes she had a blog she wrote for LA magazine for several years but she got into it she said because of an unsolved murder that happened when she was a young girl and how I don't remember the exact quote unfortunately I forgot to mark it but it was there was something about needing to know this person's face because if you knew his face and you knew his name that took away his power and that theme is kind of interwoven throughout the rest of the book both on her part and the part of the investigator she tells a lot of personal stories about the people involved far beyond the actual golden state killer she talks about investigators she talks about like the criminologists when dna started to really become a thing in crime investigation she talks about the victims which is something that was very i was very affected by i think the thing with true crime and she touches on this i think fairly early on in the book she kind of comes back to it a couple of times is by nature of consuming true crime and other kind of crime content you're essentially being entertained by someone else's tragedy i hadn't really thought of it that way because i think in the fascination between the people who commit crimes we often can forget that behind these sort of larger than life figures who get i think a bit fictionalized and mythologized as time goes on there's real people and i think some of that fictionalization is a bit of a coping mechanism for that it certainly was for me i think looking back if they're not real people it's not as close but she's she refuses to go in that direction because she refuses to give the golden state killer the kind of power that can give a person especially if they're not caught which he wasn't at the time uh, she was writing this and at the time it was published it was published i believe in february of 2018 and in April of 2018, they announced that they had found somebody, found a man who matched the DNA to all the crime, all the, they had like three samples of DNA. It was all the same DNA from various crime scenes associated with the Golden State Killer, and he was a match. So they have him. He's like in his 70s. He was a fucking police officer, which somehow makes it worse. Um, and he's currently, I think he was arraigned last month. So it's still an ongoing case that is still affecting people. And I think that's an aspect of true crime that can get kind of lost in the sensationalism. Do you have any thoughts on that now that I have monopolized conversation for six minutes? Well, you were giving the summary. Those typically go a little long on remedial studies, so I don't feel that way. But I do, one of the main questions that I kind of came into this with is because I don't really, I don't really do true crime. That's not my genre. I have not consumed, willingly consumed, even cold case files for several years. A couple of years, you know, do you ever like get sucked into a cold case files marathon and you don't want to watch it, but you're watching it? it there's something oh, yeah. compulsive about it. But I never really choose to partake in true crime and a question I kind of came with that I'm coming with to these next two episodes is 
is true crime ethical? Is this an ethical genre? And I came into these two weeks with some preconceived notions about true crime, about true crime writing, and I think Michelle McNamara kind of changed my mind about things or pushed me more into a gray area because I think there are some problems with the true crime genre, especially the way that it's typically done, right? It can be exploitative. It can be self-indulgent. I think there's an element of catharsis there, but I think that element of catharsis is, oh, thank God it's not me. I don't think Mm -hmm. that's a good form of catharsis. Part of true crime makes the people who experience that crime this most horrific thing that can happen to people. They have to experience it again. And I don't know if that's necessarily fair to them that we are entertained by their essentially anguish. Like, that's why it's so compelling. We come into it with this morbid curiosity, I think. Like, how dark can humanity be? And I don't know with the kind of people that commit these really horrific crimes, like the Golden State Killer... I don't know if there's anything useful to learn about human nature from someone who isn't particularly human. Hmm. I think we're going to be the two roads that diverged in the yellow wood for a moment. (laughs) I'm turning into hose. You're quoting poets in my shit now. In reading this book and kind of, I, I had a lot of, maybe not preconceived notions, but I had a lot of similar concerns about true crime and why it's so popular because i i think you're right i i think there is a part of it especially in the in the way some true crime chooses to be presented um across multiple mediums that is inherently exploitative and maybe that's as a way to sort of buffer ourselves from it but i think what's important about stories that are presented in the way I think Michelle McNamara wanted to present them is that we need to remember what kind of darkness exists in the world. I'm not entirely sure if I've landed on why, but that's something that I think I've kind of grown comfortable in as far as acknowledging why I can find true crime compelling is it's like as much as I love to keep my rose my rose colored sunglasses on, it's I think good to remember that sometimes it's a trope anymore, but like the real monsters are human. Like that's a thing that does exist in the world. And I think the way I read this book was that she wanted to tell a story that didn't have an ending because she wanted to sort of find the ending herself and i and that's touched upon i think in the afterward that pat and oswald talks about she never cared if she was the person who found him she just wanted him to be found and i think the appeal of unsolved mysteries and why there's a sherlock holmes and everybody and all that other stuff can can ring true sometimes is that i don't want to call it an instinct because i don't think that's true but this compulsion to separate ourselves from people like that to think that they're not human when they they are 
in the in a strict sense as far as like the societal sense no but i just keep thinking about like i finished this book last night and i've been thinking about it since then the man who was arrested in california in april to everyone around him for 70 some years was a normal person and he's a monster and i think that you shouldn't be paranoid which i have i have a tendency to be so i can't cast the first stone if you get like that with true crime i feel that there's solidarity in this chilies tonight but it's i don't even know if i can answer my own question at this point and <laughs> and i think that that's something we're still grappling with as a society and while we're talking about it as a podcast community because that's a joke I've made kind of joking, kind of serious for a little while now, is there's only two legitimate genres of podcasts, true crime, and audio dramas. <laughs> but I've always kind of wondered about that, because at some point, at some point, you would imagine, you run out of murders. But we keep retelling these same stories, and we keep just going back and going back and going back. And I think maybe that's the part that I don't really understand. I think I can get behind the initial telling of it and like making it a part of our historical record and all that fun stuff. I think it's the repetition that I have a problem jiving with. Does that make any sense? Yeah, because here's, here's the thing about true crime. Is that after a while, this all feels the same. Mm-hmm. The really, the really, really bad ones, they all feel the same to me like there's some undercurrent there and maybe it's because to be able to do these things to other people there's something you have in common there and I think it's so pervasive and overwhelming that it it makes all the other details difficult what's really important is that this hurt people it it hurts so many people it it ruins so many lives and in particular this particular criminal person that we're talking about is that mm-hmm. i mean there were 50 sexual assaults and i don't know how many double homicides i think it was under 10 but more than five so five i think to at 10. least at least 13 people yeah that they can charge him with were murdered at yeah. least 13 so it, it's a lot and and you know it ruined marriages and people mm-hmm. didn't feel safe because how do you recover from something like that? You don't. And, and I think that's the important thing to focus on is is recovering mm-hmm. and how do you how do you deal with this kind of evil coming into your life? I think my other problem with true crime is that evil and a lot of true crime it looks very evil. Like it's it's very clear that mm-hmm. these people are not right, that everything they are doing is despicable and awful and excusable, horrific. It's very clear. I worry sometimes that that's going to be the only thing that evil looks like to people. And I think as terrible and awful and just absolutely devastating as as these crimes are, the kind of evil that really we should be concerned about as a society is the kind of more casual apathy, the kind of institutional, systematic injustice, and, you know, the just 
capitalism, like the kind of, I'm not saying that capitalism is inherently evil. I'm just saying the kind of evils, even though it kind of is, (laughs) it kind of is, pass it on. (laughs) I'm kidding. Go back to what you were saying. Are you though? No. But just (laughs) the kind of (laughs) passive evils you see with, with that kind of system. And it's just like, I don't want people to worry about this sort of thing because I think ultimately and why I'm ultimately not necessarily interested in this sort of evil is that I can't do anything about it. I can't keep it from happening. It's not actionable. That's an interesting point. And and I think because my big thing, the lot of the anxiety that I got out of this book was that feeling of helplessness. I do think I got something out of the book, clearly, or I wouldn't be talking about it. But I think that is an easy trap to fall into where it's like, I, th- I think there's like, there's the two camps. You either fall into this swirling pit of like, oh, there's this evil in the world, but I can't do anything about it. And that's like so anxiety inducing. And, and ultimately that anxiety is not very productive. But also like, I think what made the anxiety about that even worse is coupled with the po- the political anxiety I've been having for probably the past year or so. Basically since, like, around two years. Basically since the 2016 election. And if you don't think we get political on the show, you don't really listen to the show, so sorry. But I think that feeling of helplessness is also pervasive in that arena. And it's similar enough that in my mind, they're kind of joined together. Like, I got so mad at this CNN article this week because that report on climate change came out and now all these people are like, and it's not even just CNN. It's like real people I know. Oh, I know. Oh, gosh, that made me so mad. Who are like, go vegan or like, sorry, going vegan is not the answer to everything. If you want to be vegan, you go be vegan. But like, it's not a moral leg to stand on. Right. Removing yourself from a system doesn't remove the system. Sorry. Right. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Everyone can do whatever they want. Right. And you're talking about the... There was an article that came out. The UN released a very controversial... I don't think it's that controversial. Well, is it? But yeah, go on. (laughs) They released a report that basically said, if we don't stop releasing greenhouse gases and do something about climate change we are going to be in so much trouble and basically we have a decade left that's it we're done in my lifetime if we don't get it together and people came out and were like decrease your personal consumption as if business and industry doesn't because the thing is the thing is and this is not me spouting bullshit a hundred or so corporations account for over two-thirds of all greenhouse gas emissions, and we never talk about that. It is always a personal failing, and I think that is a thing that also equates to a lot of the different political things we're seeing right now. It's like the whole thing where instead of telling men, hey, don't sexually assault people, the goal is to make yourself as least assaultable as you can. And it doesn't actually solve anything. And I think that, in my mind, leads to a whole heap of anxiety where ultimately you feel no matter what you do, you will be ineffective. 
And in some cases, it's true because we still have the Electoral College and thus not a full democracy. But that's another thing that I have a lot of thoughts about. At some point about any given issue, there is only so much you can do. But the expectations about what you can do are usually much higher than they actually are. Does that make any kind of sense? It does. And I think that's a product of the society that we live in, Mm -hmm. which is very focused on the individual. But I think the real power is when we get together as a group and we say no. And I think we're starting to see people realize this, but it's it's slow. Yeah. And it's painful and people are dragging their feet. Yeah, because I think my, a big thing that I got mad about in the wake of the Brett Kavanaugh decision, Brent Kavanaugh, I don't care if I get his name right, is when people were like, oh, well, the system is broken. No, it's not. The system is benefiting exactly who it was designed to benefit. Now we need to break that system. Right. To tie that back into I'll Be Gone in the Dark, one of the things I really liked that McNamara did is that she she made this book about taking the power away from the Golden State Killer. And I think that's what this is really about, and I think that's what you were saying earlier, is why this book works. It's not because you know, of how terrible the crimes were and how sensational it all was. It's that the intent is to is to focus on those mm-hmm. investigators, I think especially, their frustration, the community's fear, how do these people move on with their lives. That's all in there in addition to the horrible crimes. And there are a lot of horrible crimes. And there's a lot of time spent on the horrible crimes. But at the end of the book... What it's really about is bringing this person out into the light so that we can see him and then he no longer has the power of anonymity. He no longer has that. And finally, you know, they caught him. They did. And it took a long time. But that's why I I think this book didn't fall into that pit that I think a lot of true crime can fall into. I think it helps when it's unsolved because... Then Mm -hmm. there's a purpose, right? It's the purpose is it then becomes about justice. Yeah, it becomes about the search instead of the capture in a way. Right. If you know who it is and who and all the terrible things that they did, like it's over, you know, let these people move on with their lives. Yeah, I think that was mentioned briefly in the afterword that her husband wrote where he talked about how he was like kind of an edgelord in his 20s, like so many of us were. (laughs) And he, like, knew she was into, like, investigating true crime and stuff even when they met. And he would, like, spout off, like, as if serial killers had baseball cards and he would, like, spout off their facts. And she wouldn't give a fuck. She was like, I don't care. I know all that. I don't care about it. And I think that is what sets her and her writing apart for me from a lot of other true crime content that I've consumed, uh, even up to recently. Is I think for her, and we see this throughout the course of the book, to tie into what, what you just mentioned, for her it's not about what happened. It's about who it happened to, who did it, and what happened after. And I think that last part, the what happened after, is not anything that is addressed very much 
in other kinds of true crime media. I mean, and I don't, I don't say that as if I, I don't want it to be a huge focus because I think we could get into all sorts, but that, that at some point is even more exploitative. Right, though. It's a thin, it's a thin line. Yeah, but I, I think, you know, as much as I, like, will get on my soapbox and be like, we need to remember that the people we see as monsters are people, too. Check out Monstrous Volume 1, where that's explained. There's a certain kind of monstrosity that I totally, 100%, understand this need to separate what we view as normal from. Because obviously, a man who rapes 50 people and commits many double homicides and home invasions, like, that's not normal. That's not normal. And and it shouldn't be normal, Ops. I think we need to remember that there's real people behind all of it. And a lot of the book, I think, is, is McNamara asserting that despite the fact that the Golden State Killer was became this larger-than-life figure, at the end of the day, he's a person with a face and a name. But I think we also need to remember that behind every criminal like that, there are victims that are faces and names. And that is not something I feel is focused on in true crime content these days. Yeah, I I don't know, because I haven't engaged with as much true crime. I, I finished Serial as part of my research for the next episode, where we're going to talk about Sadie. Mm-hmm. Which is fiction. We're going to return to fiction. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, and I guess that's the other thing is, like, genre plays a role here because this book doesn't require suspension of disbelief. It happens, so you have no option to turn the suspension of disbelief off. And I think that's part of why it had such a deep impact on me. I don't read a lot of nonfiction, and I read more science writing than anything else, so... And that's a very different ball game. Oh, yeah. <laughs> than what's happening here. I could tell you a million facts about <laughs> octopuses, but I don't really know a whole lot about serial killers, which I would, I'm happy about that. Because I feel like, I don't know, they all seem so similar to me. Yeah, I've never really understood. There's almost a bit of this fanaticism around serial killers, I think. I, I knew people who... We're just fascinated by them. And I think for some people, it's an almost scared, morbid fascination. But for some people, it was almost like they were fans. Which I think only happens when someone becomes so mythologized, they become essentially a fictional character. Yeah. And you you can become so separated from it. Which, again, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about that. Because I, I understand, like, your brain compartmentalizing it that way. Of to be like, I can't take or my anxiety or whatever, can't really take the fact that this person and I share a species. Like, that is difficult even for me sometimes. Yeah. I get it, but at some point it becomes this weird, twisted thing of, we're not all Sherlock Holmes, and there's not, especially with with finished stuff, with stuff that we know what happened, there's nothing left to figure out. There's nothing, there's no new thing you and your fanaticism can add to this it's done and it's over and that's why i think i never really understood the fascination particularly i think women and women our age have with serial killers like ted bundy and the whole concept of manson girls and all all this other stuff that i i guess it's because i 
believe in my heart that I would never be one of those people, even though you'd never really know. Like, not not that I would never be one of those people that would fantasize about being like, well, as long as I'm in his life, he'd be different after someone is like arrested and convicted. <laughs> it's one thing uh. if like I had known Ted, Ted Bundy in real life before it was known that he was a serial killer. Who the fuck knows? But like, I I find that kind of dangerous. This whole thing we do, and it, I I think we do it with a whole bunch of criminals, but it's a, there's a special thing about serial killers, which is weird, because as you said, at some point, they're kind of all the same. Here Here's the thing for me, and how true crime impacted me. So, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but I certainly did, that one of the things that was similar about a lot of the serial killers is that their victims were all like, young, pretty women. That Mm -hmm. seems to be a common thing. And I think growing up, I'm like, oh, great. Well, I'm prime serial killer victim material. That's wonderful. And and so I didn't like that about serial killers and that sameness. And I don't know what it is about that. I don't know why that's a thing. I'm going to say that. Second of all, what I realized as I got older is that... I don't even know that that's necessarily a serial killer thing. The victim profile, right, of the young, pretty blonde woman. Mm-hmm. I think that says more about which cases we choose to care about than it says about serial killers. Mm. Well, here's what I realized. So I had a feeling, and I confirmed it today because I looked up who who gets murdered the most. And it's not white women. I'm going to tell you that much. It's actually women of color that get murdered the most. I guess no one is really surprised, I don't think. And I'm not going to speculate on why that is, but I I think we know why it doesn't seem that way sometimes. Because a lot of the cases that you see on television, I've seen and heard black community members complain that when their girls go missing, no one cares. But when, who was it, like, Natalie Holloway disappeared? Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Smart disappeared? It was a media circus. Yeah. For months. So what does that say about us and our fascination with serial killers? These particular serial killers. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it, it calls into question who we deem victim enough to be worthy of that kind of media circus. I always end up being reminded, as I often am, I'm going to sound like the edgelord for a second here. <laughs> I'm excited. But I'm pretty sure most of the people who listen to this show, I'm not counting you because you've never seen any of the movies I think you should have seen, have seen <laughs> Christopher Nolan's Batman uh, I have movie. seen that movie. Have you seen The Dark Knight? Yeah, of course. I'm not. I don't live under a boulder. <laughs> okay well i just don't want to assume you've burned me so many times i know i Um, really haven't seen like 98 percent of the movies that i should have by now but you have seen dark knight but it's the line that the joker says about how murder is covered in the news and in society when he's in the he's in the hospital and he's talking to harvey dent and he talks about like that's probably not the scene but he says this movie he says this line at some point in the film if i kill one mayor everyone loses their minds but if i were to say i was going to kill a gangbanger 
or a platoon of troops were going to blow up in Afghanistan, no one would bat an eye at that because it's part of the plan. And I know it's a little bit conspiracy to think that there's such a thing as the plan, but I think there is such a thing as societal bias and as to how we cover and view victims because, and this is sort of some intersectionality for y'all, I've seen like queer women of color complain about how no one really gives a shit when trans women of color are murdered. Right, though. And then this happened recently. They misrepresent that person's identity and like misgender mm-hmm. them. They use their dead name and they're like really focused on not the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing that happens and it's fucked up. I definitely see that there could be some crossover between our idea of victimhood and in the serial killers we choose to focus on. I think that's a very good point that bears further investigation. I think it's something we as a society don't want to deal with because then it would call into question who have we missed, <laughs> which is a horrifying prospect that there's, and I'm, and I'm sure this is a statistic. I think that gets thrown out every once in a while. I don't remember the exact number, but I remember it was, this was a long time ago, but it was some true crime show that was on TV. So I was watching it and <laughs> as you do. And they were at, they were asking somebody, you know, well, how many active serial killers that we don't yet know are serial killers are active in the United States? And there's no way to know. There's no way to know. It could be, there could be none or there could be 50. You don't know. I think that aspect of not knowing is also something that fuels the narrative of I'll be gone in the dark. It's a fight against that feeling of not knowing. Because I think That's where the real anxiety comes in for me and why I totally 100% was with it when she was talking about like, you know, I need to see his face because I know he's got one. Right. And there were stories where she was talking about the communities and how they were impacted and how it got to such a point. There was such a fervor that victims could remember seeing the ski mask and the man with the flashlight and thinking oh god it's him when you get to the point where you are by its own by its most base definition a celebrity and that i think is the part that was so fucked up to me is that you make if you get to a point where you're that evil like at some point i think people were like we're never going to catch this guy because he's either in our more modern times he's either dead or he's so good if he wasn't caught for those two decades that he was committing crimes, he's never gonna. And and I think that um, that's something I think that we get a little bit less of in the age of DNA and all this other stuff. But that's not perfect. I worked in a crime lab and it's not perfect. And I think M- McNamara talks about that. I know she had very strong opinions that we could be here for another hour. So you also have very strong opinions about the use of dna and privacy protection and all that all that good stuff which i unfortunately i'm not that schooled on it so i feel like i'm not at the place where i can form a firm opinion so i feel like i I, it would just be you talking i would feel like i couldn't really join in that conversation yeah i could i could talk about dna for probably days and days just because 
I worked in a genetic study for a while. I'm a bio- I had a biology degree. I've been following the Ancestry.com and the familial DNA testing with a lot of interest because it can really mm-hmm. mess up families <laughs> when you do a DNA test and you find out you're not as related as you thought you were. And, and I think that's, that's not necessarily relevant here, but what, what is relevant is that they used a public mm-hmm. database of DNA markers, Ancestry.com, to find a relative of this man and then track him down. And that's how they got to him is through, is through his family. So it, you could inadvertently, by doing this kind of testing, expose your family to being caught and convicted of crimes. And I don't think people think about that when they upload their DNA to a public database, uh, but it turns out it's a very real possibility. Yeah, because that was not something. Cause I, I'd heard of Ancestry.com. I've heard of 23andMe. Just to be like, oh, that's something that might be interesting if I cared more about it. For some people, I'm sure that kind of thing is like really meaningful to them. But it wasn't until it's mentioned in the book that that was a possible application that I was like, oh, shit, you're right. Because <laughs> that was something when I worked at the crime lab, when she talks a little bit earlier, I think in that same chapter, about DNA evidence is only as good as the databases you can match it against. Right, and we're building better and better databases through essentially crowdsourcing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of exciting in a way because, oh, we can catch the baddies, but also, like, let's say my brother uploaded his DNA and my mother uploaded her DNA. How much do you then know about me? Like, both my parents upload their DNA. Mm-hmm. My, my whole family, except for me, uploads their DNA you know what my DNA looks like. You have a very good idea mm-hmm. of what my DNA look, looks like. You have a very good idea of my pre-existing conditions. You have a very good idea, not all of, not all pre- pre-existing conditions, but, you know, like, you know more about me than I want you to know, and I have no control over that, even though that information is also mine, mm-hmm. and it's fundamentally mine. Like, that is my map. That is what physically makes me me Mm -hmm. to a certain extent we can get into epigenetics blah 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 but like you now know so much about me and i had nothing to do with it so i just that bothers me in a way but also like i'm glad they caught him yeah i think that that's the double edge to that is it's like for every negative application there could be there's an equal and opposite positive and that's something that I'm still struggling with as I learn more about this issue and all all that fun stuff, because I do find it interesting and I want to know more about it. But it smacks a little bit of the Orwellian mixed with a little bit of Wachowski to me. <laughs> right, though? If Orwell wrote The Matrix, this would be something that would be included in it. Because as, as for all of the positive things that that could and do come out of DNA testing. Like, we get to catch people who thought they were scot-free for decades, and they get to be tried and punished for their crimes. And people get closure, which is so important. People get closure. I think it is equally possible that 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 kind of database could be exploited. I did a whole project. I took a science writing class um, at one point. I feel like a lot of my points start with, I took this class. (laughs) <laughs> but it's the truth. 
I took a science writing class and my final project, I did a whole bunch of research into genetic diversity and genetic control, essentially. And I did it through a lens of how you can essentially, as a parent, design your child at the genetic level and how that is affecting basically how that's causing a second rise of eugenics is essentially what as if eugenics ever really went away that is also an application of that kind of of that kind of technology i think where it's like like we said with the pre-existing conditions i don't want my fucking insurance provider to have that we live in the U.S. We have mostly private insurance who they already can deny you for whatever the fuck they want. And I don't want to give more reasons for that. But I also would like to catch serial killers. It's a whole thing. Yeah, it's, it's, a du- it's like you said, it's a double-edged sword. Like, it's we have to commit to using things ethically and responsibly. Right. And I think a lot of the time we just don't think about it until... It's already happened, and it, it's mm-hmm. sort of a problem with technology that I think people have struggled with for a long time, mm-hmm. not just recently, but I think it's gotten much worse recently because of AI, because of genetics, because of what we can do with cloud computing, mm-hmm. and and how dependent we are on these external systems Yeah, that can be exploited and manipulated. I mean, DNA is not an external system, but you know what I mean. No, I totally know what you mean. Because at some point, we we could get to a point where that could be affected by an external system. Assuming climate change does not kill us all, which sounds like a big assumption these days. I was watching, this is going to be a little bit of a tangent, but I swear it ties in. I was watching the season 11 premiere of Doctor Who this weekend, and they had (laughs) a... Like, a little panel, like, I watched on BBC America, and they had, like, a little panel of people who were, like, people who were into the show that you wouldn't really think were into the show. And one of them uh, was an astrophysicist that they asked to come on, who had very recently gotten into the show, and they asked her, you know, do you feel anything like this needs to be beholden to, quote-unquote, real science? Like, they said it as if there were air quotes around it. The woman was like, well, it's science fantasy. (laughs) So, no. But also, like, so much of the stuff that's talked about as science fiction these days is not as far away from science fact as I think a lot of us think it is, myself included. Especially, like, obviously there's stuff that's weird and over-speculative, and that falls more on the science fantasy, like, it works because it works kind of mentality. But I think there's a whole bunch of stuff, because in particular in the episode, they had these things called DNA bombs which were these things that would attach to your genetic material. And essentially, when they detonated, they would completely rewrite and destroy your DNA, killing you and making you a different person. And she's like, obviously, that's a bit far-fetched, but it's not something that is totally outside the realm of possibility in in the not-too-distant future. And I was thinking about that as I finished this book, because it's like... There's so many applications for things that we can't even dream of yet. And I think that's the scariest thing for me about when I when I think about how these things can be used, because so much of the answer to that is we don't know, which ties us back into the crime part of this and why I think unsolved murders and mysteries and conspiracy theories and stuff like that continue 
for I'm assuming some kind of audience. I fall into this sometimes. Your girl loves a good conspiracy theory. But why those continue to be compelling? And I think it is that aspect of not knowing. And I think that's why I, I tend to go, when I, if I ever go into true crime, I go for stuff like this book. But I will never in a million goddamn years watch an episode of Law & Order SVU. Because I don't find that productive. I don't really know why it's still a show. <laughs> like, SVU in particular. Like, the OG Law & Order, Law & Order Criminal Intent, I didn't have as much of a problem with it. I think it was the, the sexual exploitative aspect of SVU that I was just like, no. This could very well happen to me. I would like to not watch it on TV, please. But I think with the unsolved, you can get both. You can get that sense of wonder and mystery where you want to put on your fucking Sherlock, ha Sherlock Holmes hat and a pipe and work away on it. But you also can still, when you have someone that doesn't have a face and doesn't have a name, when they're still in that mythical place, you still can get that layer of separation that becomes something like you use it to insulate yourself from the reality of what's going on. And while I can certainly empathize with that, I don't think it's something that we need to encourage going forward in the genre. All right, robots, that's going to wrap us up today on this heavy episode. I mean, it was always going to be, but there you are. The heaviness is going to keep on rolling, but this time it will be fictional. So next episode, which will be in one week, not two, one week from uh, when you are hearing this on the 15th, we will be reading um, a book called Sadie by Courtney Summers. And I believe it is about a girl who tries to solve an unsolved crime by reaching out to a true crime podcast. All the threads are connecting. It's almost like we planned it that way. Almost. By us, Hannah. Hannah planned it. My only contribution <laughs> to this plan that we've had for like five weeks was Hosier and Crimson Peak. That's half of the plan. You know what? Now that you say it, but they're not related. I feel like more work went into relating the things. Nah, I, I was struck by a muse. To be fair, I've wanted to do a Crimson Peak episode like since the beginning. And also, um, I did want to say something real, real, real quick before we get into our indie spotlight. Because I got a notification on Facebook and on Twitter. We passed, this week we passed our one year mark on Twitter, and we passed our one-year mark of when we recorded the first episode. Because um, I, I posted a picture on Instagram of us in Hannah's old kitchen with our two microphones, and we recorded on only one, and the audio was kind of awful, but not as awful as it could have been. And I just had a lot of soft memories about that. It'll officially be a year since we've been publishing the show on, on the 31st, um, you're going to hear the Crimson Peak episode on the 30th, but we're getting there and I'm real soft about it and I wanted to say something. Yeah, it's it's been a wild ride. Mm -hmm. Maybe not as wild as we hoped, question mark, but... But it's been a ride. It's been a ride and it's been a fun one, so it's it's a lot. Shall I, shall I tell them our social media and do the Indie Spotlight? Yes, please. Okay, Indie Spotlight is a Finnish webcomic called Earth Song. That started in 2004, and I just found out that it finally finished in 2016. I had abandoned it because the updates were so slow that I thought that it was it was abandoned. So it's a beautifully 
done comic and it's kind of a mythology mashup where you have I can't really the the fun is that the main character kind of wakes up with amnesia and doesn't know anything so if I tell you things you don't get to discover them along with her and it's not as fun but basically like there's this planet and all these mythological creatures show up and they're it's its own independent mythology that's not really related to any mythologies that I'm familiar with and it's just really fun anyway it's beautiful and now that it's finished you should go read it it's earth song and it's by crystal yates so for us in our social media uh we'd really like it if you like the show if you reviewed the show that's how we know if we're doing a good job so rate and review and also how other people find the show maybe perhaps tell your friends especially your weird friends uh you can follow us on twitter we're at remedial studies you can follow us on tumblr we're uh remedial studies podcast.tumblr.com you can send us an email and that's remedial studies podcast at gmail.com and you can follow us on instagram where we are just at remedial studies so yeah that's it for us today bye robots bye